Welcome in everyone. Um, it is Thursday, September 23rd, 2021, and we're here coming, from, uh, coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri at the Americans for Equal and Shared Parenting uh, Legislative Summit here. Um, and uh, I'm your host, Mark Reel, and today we have a very special guest. We have Missouri Attorney Jeff Millar. Um, Jeff is the uh, founder and managing member of Millar Law Firm. He's been practicing uh, practicing law for over 20 years in, in several states, barred in, in Missouri and Illinois. Um, not only is he a practicing attorney, though, um, he has been a driving force and an advocate for equal and shared parenting in the state of Missouri um, for the past five to seven years. Uh, Missouri has been one of the most active states in terms of getting bills introduced. Uh, he's also a registered lobbyist. He's testified in um, 2018, 2019, 2021 on their equal and shared parenting bills. And he's also testified on other family law reform matters, um, including HB 1315, uh, which aimed to reform uh, the practices and procedures of guardians ad litem. So um, this is an individual who's been very active in the space for several years now. So excited to get an opportunity to chat with him. So Jeff, thank you so much for coming over. I know you weren't going to be over here until uh, tomorrow for the conference, right. but you, you came over to make an appearance on the show. So thank you for that. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, you're very welcome. It's, it's our pleasure, really. So first question, I told you when we were going back and forth earlier today, um, in, in your bio you gave me, you and your son. How old, <laughs> how old your son? He's, he's going to be 18 in three weeks. I can't believe it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, you guys have been to 20 of the 30 Major League Baseball stadiums. Yeah. And those of you that know me know that I, I used to say in my first life, I worked in professional baseball. Um, what, what are some of your favorite stadiums you've been to? So we've, we've actually been to 22. We did the two down in Texas this summer. Okay. So each, each summer we take about five or six different ballparks to go to. So we did Texas this year only because of COVID. We didn't want to hit uh, the East Park or East Coast parks. Uh, yeah. Not sure if they, if they canceled the game. I mean, you know, we're stuck, you know, out mm. there. So uh, some of my favorites, though, I mean, got to be... Um, my favorite is um, uh, out in San Francisco. Oh, that's... Uh, just with the bays and, you know, uh, that's one of my favorites. Um, I really like um, PNC Park in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. The bridges going across are beautiful. Now, the, the, but the funny thing is, though, you ask, you ask my son, we've been to 22 parks uh -huh. all out west California, down south and out down Florida and uh, in the Midwest. And you ask my son, what's his favorite ballpark? He says, Kauffman Stadium. Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City? <laughs> it's like... Four hours hey, from here. To, to be fair, I lived. I lived. I went to law school in Chicago, and okay. I lived for the first two years of law school. I lived four blocks away from Wrigley. Oh wow! And great. the experience is unmatched. And I was yeah. in, I was in Chicago. I didn't live in Wrigleyville at the time when the Cubs won the World Series. Oh great! Can't top that. Can't beat that experience. Yeah. But San Francisco, ballpark wise, not atmosphere wise. Right. Miami's a beautiful ballpark. Uh huh. Yep. I haven't been the ones I haven't been to are up in the Northeast. Yes, that's that's what we're going to need to do next summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll get back to to what brought us here today. <laughs> and and as always, we start out with what's going on at the state level, and we start out with the National Parents Organization scorecard. So um, taking a look at that, the state of Missouri grades out as a C plus, mm -hmm. which is average, maybe a tick above average in terms of of where it sits compared to the other states. Um, now, there's been a lot of movement, and you're obviously someone who's been on the ground and been testifying. So mm -hmm. dating back all the way to 2016, there's been a ton of activity, but maybe not a ton of movement in the state of mm -hmm. Missouri. Do you kind of want to tell the viewers about what, what we've had going on? Sure, yeah. So first, before I start, big, big, big shout out to NPO. Just some fantastic folks there, and they have done a lot of uh, background work in getting surveys done that uh, we'll be talking about this throughout the weekend, but that have been instrumental in getting the nation's best equal shared parenting law passed in Arkansas. Uh, they did some similar survey work for Missouri as well. So great, great job uh, by our our, uh, our 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 team there. Um, Missouri started. Um, it's this will be coming up. Will be our eighth year, um, and it started so a few years before. I guess around 2014, 15 uh, is when bills started to get filed. Um, 2016 was a bit of a watershed year because that's the year we we first got into statute. 
terms regarding equal parenting. Mm -hmm. It didn't quite make it into where it needs to be in terms of what we call um, a rebuttable presumption. And that's what that is, is that is just sort of like a starting place. So, um, you know, if you think of a football game, instead of starting at, you know, in the end zone or at the, you know, anywhere like the 22 yard, 20 yard line or whatnot, why are we not starting at the 50 yard line? Mm -hmm. You know, so that all began in Missouri in 2016. And what happened in 2016 is a change to the statute. It was uh, 452.556.1. And basically it said that court clerks are required to create a handbook to help parents create a parenting plan. And in so doing, the, the language was um, they have to create guidelines as to what to include in a parenting plan. And here's the key. In order to maximize to the highest degree the amount of time the child may spend with each parent. Great sounding language. It's just it's just not beefed up Where's in the, the right place. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, in the right part of the statute. I mean, we need something that directs the judiciary to say this isn't a clerk creating guidelines for a handbook. This is the judge saying um, we're starting at 50-50. Um, now, some do. Some do. The problem is um, our counties are, are, you know, if you've got counties uh, here in the St. Louis metro area, you've got a couple counties divided by the, by the Missouri River. And the problem is you can start with a judge in one county who says we're starting at 50-50. You can go 20 minutes across the river and get the exact opposite experience mm -hmm. and that just shouldn't be the case because it's a it's a state law it needs to be applied consistent consistently regardless of the courtroom you're in the judge you have the lawyer you have um, so that's why we need to give it a, and, and, and we've been working since 2016 to say well now we've got you know the basics the model now we've got to give it some teeth and say here's where you start um, and it ought to be that you you, you shouldn't have to prove you're a good person, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I hate to compare it to sort of criminal law, but in criminal law, we've often heard, you know, you're, you're innocent until proven guilty. You don't have to prove your innocence legally in criminal court. Um, so why is it any different for a parent? Why does a parent have to come in and prove I'm a, I'm a fit parent? Mm -hmm. I mean, the presumption, and there's some U.S. Supreme Court cases that say, um, you know, a parent is presumed to be fit. Well, if that's the case, if you're presumed to be fit, then you shouldn't you shouldn't have to prove that it should the burden should be on the the other side the parent who believes you're not fit to prove you're not fit and so that's what you know the intent of our work our lobbying our our legislative drafts are to say you know no judiciary you start where they're both fit they have equal time if someone is offering why there should not be equal time well they've got to come forward and prove it yeah. you know um, otherwise, you shouldn't be spending tens of thousands of dollars and years of time to get that time with your child. I'm fond of saying, you know, there's no point going to court to get more time with your five-year-old if, if by the time you get it, they turn 18 in three weeks. <laughs> or they turn eight or they turn 10. And, and You're wasting time. Well, one of the things I always use, the viewers always hear me use, is when we're, we're creating this change, and obviously there's a group of us here um, this weekend going to be working towards hopefully creating mm -hmm. some change. But the first downs, right now we don't start on that 50-yard line. That's right. And yep. in every single state, we have to continue to work and to get those first downs. And a state like Missouri, there's been a ton of activity. But we saw, I mean, I think it was what, ended up being six states last year right. that passed some form of improvement. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned the three prongs we're looking for. We're looking for that rebuttable presumption. We're looking for the burden of proof to rebut that presumption, and then facts, findings, and conclusions if that were, that presumption is rebutted. So there's some accountability. Well, and that's the other part of the change in 2016 that happened is mm -hmm. part of that law said judges have to enter facts, findings, and conclusions of law for their judgments. Mm -hmm. So they can't just sort of willy-nilly say, "Well, I'm going this way," and da da da. No, they've got to have you know something uh, substantive justifying their order. It also comes after, so, so that's, that's the aspect of the law that happened in 2016. After that law uh, went into effect in August of 2016, there's a very important case that came down in Missouri called Morgan v. Morgan. Mm -hmm. And Justice Page did a terrific job analyzing um, the custodial statutes in Missouri as well as this new law. And she said in her opinion, you know, the intent of the legislature is clear. 
joint custody is favored. And look at this language about creating the handbook. It says to maximize the time with each parent. So what we're going to interpret that new law is saying is it ought to start at being equal. The problem is it's just with so many different counties, so many different courts, it's just not been strong enough. And that's why we need to create a follow-up bill like all these other states are now doing. Yeah. And we've, we've worked with you know, half dozen, uh, eight or nine different states like Arkansas, uh, like Wisconsin, like Michigan. Um, that's the great thing about um, volunteering for uh, an organization like Americans for Equal Shared Parenting, even though I'm Canadian. Um, <laughs> uh, Canadians are for it as well. Um, is we've been able to work with all these different groups, you know, like NPO, like the folks in Arkansas, uh, to draft core quality legislation that's consistent consistent from each state so we're, we're basically in the process of drafting and and eventually adopting a uniform statute on equal parenting from the beginning and, and it's just from the beginning I get if there's other issues that's fine you got to come into court and you've got to prove it you can't just you know make allegations in, 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 a, in a pleading because what often happens is you know Gosh, in some of these counties, I practice in about four or five different counties here in Missouri, and they're all about three or four months away from your initial case management conference. Mm -hmm. So someone files their petition for custody or divorce, and you're looking minimum at four months before you get in front of the judge. And even then, that's just a case management. That's not nothing substantive. Might be another two months before you get there on an evidentiary hearing or an evidentiary motion, um, basically a motion for temporary custody. That's six months. If you haven't seen your kid in six months and that kid is three, four, five years old or however the age, that is a huge problem. So what, what our attempts are in drafting this, this legislation is we also need to get an, a temporary order done within the first month. Mm -hmm. So here's, here's the deal and this is the standard. It's, and you, you know, it's not, you can, still, um, you can still vary it in terms of, even though it's 50-50, you can achieve that a number of different ways. You know, yeah. week on, week off two days, two days, and then three days over the weekend, um, every other day if they're a young, young kiddo. Um, so it's not, you know, we're not forcing, you know, some default thing. You can still vary it. We're yeah. just saying the default presumption from the beginning is equality, um, and that's what this country was founded on. Yeah, and I, I just, on, on Wednesday, I had a very frustrating initial hearing. It was a father who the mother had just decided on her own to start withholding the child. Yeah. She withheld the child, she files, and then she relocates. Then she blames the distance as being the yeah. reason why there can't be something yeah. more equitable. Yeah. And you look at the judge and say, she's, call, she's caused every she's, bit she's, of this. Yeah. She's yeah. caused every bit of this. Yeah. There's not. It wasn't one of those cases. There were no substance abuse. There right. were no domestic violence, which unfortunately is in the minority mm -hmm. um i think i i exclusively represent fathers mm -hmm. um and i would say the majority of the cases i get coming in there's one of the kind of the holy trinity of allegations coming in there was none of that yeah. and the judge right. ended up granting him in the initial hearing 16 percent custody um and he was how he had the child we did the math prior to the mom withholding he had the child about 55 percent of the time yeah and that's why the fix the fix to this issue is legislative and why these groups are so important to 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 drive the law through the legislature to then cascade down upon the judiciary that says and you know it gives them you know an out or a hook to hang their hat on too they can just say hey look here's what the legislature's decided they're the elected representatives they've decided this if you have a problem with the law take it up with them type of thing but we're now starting from a point deemed by the legislature to be where we where we ought to start off yeah, and then we see a lot, and I, I'll admit, I'm, I'm very new to this movement. It, it feels like in the past 18 months to two years that the snowball's gotten bigger. It's rolling downhill. It's becoming something that's more mainstream and more acceptable, and there's more conversation about it. There, there is, and, and I, I think you're also seeing a change in the demographic. I mean, I represent both moms and dads, and I don't see it so much as a gender issue as I see it as sort of like a, you know, almost a mental health issue, which courts just aren't equipped to deal with. Um, and um, but we're seeing a change in demographic. I mean, um, uh, uh, tomorrow I'll be celebrating. Let's see, the tenth anniversary of my thirty-eighth birthday, or the twentieth anniversary of my twenty-eighth birthday. One of the two. But you know, we're sort of the last generation that you know has this ridiculous 
one night and every other weekend. A lot of my younger moms and dad, mom and dad clients, they're actually coming to me saying, I want, we want to do 50-50, we just want to make sure, or I have this little concern, like, okay, well, here's how we deal with that. Um, but yeah, it's nice to see the demographic switch because I think these are now, these parents that are now in their, say, mid-20s or so, they may have grown up not seeing one parent, not seeing mom, not seeing dad. And they, they know it's ridiculous. They know that seeing one parent 15% of the time was not in their best interest. So they're now coming saying, I want to do 50-50. Yeah. We had this exact same conversation last week. I had California attorney David Pizarro on, and we were talking mm -hmm. about when a 20 or 30 something year old comes into yeah. my office, they almost exclusively yeah. say, I want to, yeah. I want 50, 50 custody. Yeah. I want something equitable. And when we have situations where I'll have the older clients, yeah. um, they're more like, I think I have clients from 19 to 87. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the older they are, the more likely they're just to say like, Hey, every other weekend's cool where I, I represent several, I would say, in the demographic of 18 to 24. Mm -hmm. And they almost, it's almost exclusively like, I want it to be 50-50. That's what it needs to be. Yeah, and I think, and that that's that gives some hope and some, some optimism to this. I, I think regardless of the legislative issues or change that, um, you know, that's coming just because the demographic is changing. But the other, that's the other key part of this is then the drive for, you know the good quality legislation we've drafted and helped other states with is to make this consistent so it doesn't matter what courtroom you're in or who your lawyer is here's what the legislature here's what the law says yeah. you know and let's start let's let's kind of i don't know let's do what the law says we should do <laughs> well, <laughs> and, good and, idea. And here's another thing too just in this this case on wednesday i said the decision by the judge was extremely frustrating because we go in and no. we make our initial arguments and in california like those initial hearings they're kind of back and forth the judge will say go out in the hallway and meet sure sure sure, like, sure. We'll we go yeah, back we and forth yeah. things so we have this initial piece and, and we put on kind of our initial quick five-minute pitch of the situation and right. what needs to occur. And the judge looks at me and she's like, I don't see the reason why this can't be 50-50. And so we walk out in the hallway and we're like, oh, wow. Um, That's great. You got a good is, judge. This is fantastic. Yeah. Like, we're going to be able to do something. And we go out in the hallway and I'm going to name this attorney later. I'm not going to put this in the interview with you uh -huh. um, because it was wildly inappropriate. We start having conversations and I'm like, okay, so they want 50-50. She's the one that reload, but he's willing to drive everything. Right. So like, what are you thinking? Like they both work full time. Do you want like, is it a two, two, five, five? Is mm -hmm. it a uh, three, four, four, three week on week off? The judge said they really didn't want that. So next time we go in, we're going to educate the judge sure. a, a little bit on that piece. And the attorney's like, no, we're not going to agree to any of that. Mm -hmm. And um, like I said, in this case, the mom was the one withholding the child. Yeah. And the attorney starts yelling down the hallway that if he was a good dad, he would have filed quicker. Mm -hmm. And I had some not so kind words and quite a, I'm quite a bit larger than him. Uh -huh. And uh, that, that quickly in the negotiation, but there's some attorneys and he was a little older. He's probably 55, 60 years old, that it was ingrained in him that it's like, no, like mom gets to do whatever they want. Yeah. The problem is, I mean, I'm kind of also fond of trying to uh, cut, you know, cut through it a little bit. I mean, the problem is, unfortunately, you pay your filing fee. You have a right to be a jerk. Yeah. You know, and I'm sort of getting to the point now where if, if I'm in that type of situation, then I just say, then set it for trial. I, I, you know, we can't, I'm also fond of saying this isn't rocket science. I mean, it really is not rocket science. The studies, oh my gosh, over a hundred studies have just come out and, and been clear that children benefit best from equal access to both parents. Um, so... And we we're can't. North of 125 now. Like, no whether it's yeah. maximizing time with each parent yeah. or relatively equal right, time. Right, right. So, what we can't have, what we can no longer have, and we've got to, you know, again, with the new demographic and sort of passing a, a, a retirement, hopefully, of sort of the old guard, we, we cannot have situations where you do endless settlement conferences for two years while, you know, you drain, you, you drain the parents' funds for attorneys. Um, and after two years, well, we can't agree. Let's set it for trial. No, no, no. I mean, this is why we need a temporary order within the first month when a case is filed. Um, and if 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 you if they're going to execute on their right to be a jerk and request a trial, well, then fine. Let's try it within a year. I mean, there should be no reason this takes longer than a year, especially when you've got young kids that need the stability put back in their life. Yeah, California. They say eighteen months, oh. but I'm not aware of any cases yeah. that actually go to trial. I mean. I know I have a, a hearing next week, and the judge and it, the case is 
six years old and the, mm. the trial is going to get set a full, full year out. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's seven years of now high school age kids yeah, right. going yeah. back and forth. So I, I think a lot of that, I think that a lot of the studies now are coming back is when we get to that 50-50 point, it takes away the power dynamic. Right. There's no longer one parent in control. It's no longer... Well, at, sure. And so I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, and like I was saying before with, you know, how I see this more of a you know a mental health issue but and in, in in that regard things like control you know the emotion i mean this type of law is unlike sort of any other perhaps maybe other than criminal law where you're losing your freedom although losing a child that to me is you know the equivalent of a civil death sentence but um you know we um we um uh it can't be in a place where it's you know taking this long to to get to it and 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 having this what having these laws do is they cut out that emotion they cut out that desire to control mm -hmm. um you know you're not going to blow 300 grand total both sides on attorney's fees because that's both your kids college education and then some um, you know, uh, and it, it clearly comes down. And, and because I represent both moms and dads, I don't see it so much. I, I, of course, you know, men are statistically uh, harmed more by the, the family court system, but moms are too. And so I, I don't see it so much as a gender issue as I see it as a mental health issue. And this 50-50 cuts, cuts that right out. I mean, the 50-50 does multiple things. I mean, yep. there, I mean, all the studies show that actually moms who, there, there's, Actually, the Women's uh, Legal Center, the well, I forget what the formal name of it is, Women's Legal Center, it's out of, of uh, Georgetown University. Okay. Um, they Women who have between 75 and 50% custody of a child have better mental health scores than oh, yeah. a woman who has 75 to 100%. Well, and honestly, I was just reading today, um, where was it, on some a few websites, um, you know, I mean, 50-50 frees up you know, moms to head back out into the workforce. And, you know, again, with that changing demographic, that's what we want. The Women's Law Center, um, they, the same place had the, the study that shows that um, women are 54% more likely to earn six figures yeah, yeah. in a 50-50 arrangement. I did read that. Yeah. Than they are. Absolutely. Yeah, than yeah. they are not. And then you look at, essentially what we've done is we put all the burden and we forced dad to work. And I keep coming back to this situation I had this week in court that just didn't make any sense. Well, this dad looks at me and he's like, to be able to foot this child support bill now, I'm going to have to work during my parenting time sure. on Saturday. Like it's going to be my fiance caring for the, for, for not our child, but for my, my child right. and other relationship. Um, it just, it snowballs. Right. You, we put so much parenting responsibility on the woman that it hinders their ability to create a better future. And then we saddle the man with so many obligations that he can't be the present parent that he needs to be. Well, and what I also do with, you know, all my clients when I take in a new case is I discuss with them. I have, I have my, um, new division of labor conversation with them and you know mom's you know now has this extra time 50 percent to go out and work you don't have to work and and guess what dad you're gonna have to figure out how to clean cook do laundry and all those other parenting roles that are non-traditional now again the the younger demographics already there you yeah. know so um but uh but you know he decided to divorce or separate so there are consequences to that and it just means now you've got to wear both hats you've got to be you know the provider and also the the the, the home economic home economist as well yeah and then i I've, i see multiple cases where the woman comes in and says well he's always been the provider and i've been the one at home well you're not together anymore right. um we're 2021 we've kind of gotten past i mean there still is some of in california at least some of that some of a situation where your role prior to the breakup plays into account. Yeah. My opinion is that it shouldn't. You play roles in a relationship. If the relationship doesn't exist, those roles should go away. That's right. But you do definitely see that quite frequently. Um, but but I, I see a lot of that where moms come in where it'll be typically, with, I, I would say probably 50 to 60% of my clients were are unmarried um, couples. Oh yeah. And, uh, and they'll come in and it's like they were, weren't together for that long, but right. Mom stayed at home for a year, two years. Now I'm seeing some crazy things where, like, mom left the workforce intentionally when COVID with the unemployment benefits that you right. had. And now they're claiming, oh, I can't work, I don't work. And I'm like, you can walk into any business 
on any street in the state of California uh, that's, probably get hired. That's a hard argument to make now. And I've, I've had that same conversation with my clients. It's like, there's a labor shortage. Yeah. So I don't want to hear you say you can't get a job. There's plenty of jobs out there. I, I mean, I, I live, I live in a very, I live in, I'm living in Corona, California, just outside of LA. Yeah. And I live right off the main drag. And I don't think there's a single restaurant. No, yeah. There's a Walmart. There's multiple, there's another yeah. grocery store. All, there's about 15 restaurants. I think all of them have now hiring. hiring on the outside. I agree. There's so much now. Yeah. So, um, this is actually a really good question that kind of plays into the legislative front. Oh, I hit the wrong one there. So um, I'm going to pare this down, and, and Jeff can't see it. Normally the guests can see it because it's oh, up okay. on their screen, but I'll, I'll read it here. So um, Mike asks, um, really at the core of his question is he's reached out to his state senators. Um, in Nebraska, it appears that the legal age that child support cuts off is 19, which usually it's 19 or high school graduation in mm. most states. Um, but the core of it is he's reached out to his state senators and he has not been able to get in contact with being involved in that process. What tips would you give, um, parents that are looking to help create that change in terms of reaching out to their local legislators? One of the biggest things I've learned from a friend of mine is decisions get made by those who show up. You've got to show up, go to your capital. You know, it, it's one thing to, well, it's really tough to cold call your representatives. Um, they've got so much going on, and it's just a phone call. When you show up, they can't dodge, they can't dodge, I mean, you're there in person. They mm -hmm. can't, you know, have someone say they're in a meeting and not take your phone call. Um, so showing up is the biggest one. And actually, our the, the response you get is actually very, very, you're very well received there because your, your legislators realize Oh, you've made a trip to the Capitol. You may have driven a couple hours to get here, um, and then and and do that, you know, a, a few times. Mm -hmm. Start making a habit of they're they're more than willing to just sit down and chat with you. And after you go a couple times, they start recognizing you know who you are, and then you start doing. And this is the key thing for getting legislation passed: is then you start developing relationships. Mm -hmm. That's what you need. And the other tip um, for the for the for the for your, I, I want to say caller, I'm not gonna call for, viewers. for your viewers. Yes. Another tip for your viewer that asked that question is um, uh, during the off session, you've got to get involved with their events, um, go to their fundraisers, go to their activities, go to their pressers, because then they're going to be like, oh, wait a second, this is the guy I saw. I mean, like, oh, now he's coming to my events, you know, and then, and you, and you, and then in doing that, you're also going to um, meet other people and you're going to start to broaden your, you know, just your, your, your base of your, you broaden your contacts. Yeah. You know, you're going to meet that, you know, um, uh, representatives or legislators, you know, buddy they got elected with or something. And you're going to start to, and next thing you know, you've probably got about four or five or a half dozen legis legislators that you can tap into. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are, those are my tips for how to, how to, how to get in touch with and be effective with your legislators. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll kind of piggyback for those that watch every single week, probably about two months ago, we had Brian Vandiver on who's part of the group in, in Arkansas that got the, oh, right. the phenomenal law passed. Mm -hmm. um, he'll be here on, I believe on Saturday, Saturday he's yeah. going to be coming up. Um, but that was one of the points he harped on. It was, it got to a point where the legislators knew who he was. Yeah. Um, he showed up at the state Capitol in Little Rock and yeah. he was walking office to office and they knew why he was there. Uh -huh. They knew who he was. They knew him by first name. Many of the staffers and different things knew who he was. So there was this relationship to where that phone call could eventually take place. Like, yeah. Hey, we're going to take Brian's phone call. We'll hear him out because yeah. he's, he's, he's going to show up if we don't take this. Well, exactly. And, 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 and I, I kind of chuckle, but you know, I've got to imagine on the other end when, you know, they see us show up, these guys again, these guys are going to keep showing up. Yeah, we are going to keep showing up. So you're going to need to listen to us and talk with us. And we've built these relationships over seven going on eight years now. Um, so it's real key to, to start that process. Yeah. And then the other piece too is, um, uh, a story I've, I've told before on here too, is my, um, co-author my book that's going to be released this fall, Andy Tyler. He's going to be here with us in St. Louis here, probably in a couple hours. Um, but he, he tells a story of, he's from the state of Indiana where, where I was born and raised, and he just on a whim called his local representative. And they, he, they literally got to him the same exact day and had a 90 minute conversation. Yeah. Um, so every legislator is not the same. And I think people don't realize how accessible and how 
we'll call them normal people, our yeah. state senators and our state representatives are, they're business people, they're lawyers, oh, yeah. they're poli former police officers. I mean, these are normal people in the community. Um, it, it's not someone who's been in the political machine typically right. for 30, you do have those mm -hmm. at the state level, but in general, it, it's not someone who's so detached from their community that they're not able and willing to have conversations with the people because they want to know what the pulse of the community is. Especially if you're their constituent. They yeah. like to see you in the capital. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of transition here. And, and I know it, it was one of the, let me, let me pull up here and get the bill number. So in 2021, um, you testified um, on the guardian ad litem reform 1315. So one of my biggest issues with the current family court system is I say it's pay to play. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, it's pay to play, whether it be you get slapped with unreasonable supervised visitation and you got to foot that bill, evaluations, therapists, court mm -hmm. costs. Um, some judges are having you return every three or four weeks to court and it time off work. Yeah. Time off of work. And then you're paying several hundred dollars an hour for one of us to be there to represent you. Mm -hmm. um, so, in terms of what, what's your opinion on, we'll, we'll go specifically with guardian ad litem. It's not super common um, in the areas I practice to have a guardian ad litem or a child's attorney. Um, but but what, what's your opinion on them and, and what type of change are, do you think would make those individuals more effective? Um, so a guardian ad litem is supposed to be an independent lawyer that is appointed by the court to help advise the court as to what it ought to do in the best interest of the child, independent from um, the zealous representation that mom's lawyer and dad's lawyer give. So that's, that's guardian ad litem. And they, and they you know, gosh, they uh, provide a very valuable role. Um, they're needed, you know. Um, you know as attorneys, we, we take an oath to zealously represent our clients, not necessarily the child, and that's where the guardian ad litem comes in. Mm -hmm. um, now, with you know, with every with everything, there are you know bad apples, and um, I think the biggest We've focus. Seen that in Missouri. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the biggest focus for change needs to be on accountability. I have had months go by trying to get in touch with the GAL. Um, and you know, you can call, you can email, you can, you know, if I have to, you know, put a, a, a letter on my formal letterhead and send it out, things have gotten pretty bad. Um, and you know, the reality is, um, the, the guardian item sort of becomes someone that you've kind of got to kind of also have to persuade or, or, or win over. And so it's difficult then to, I don't want to use the word challenge, it's too strong a word, but to seek some type of accountability that says, hey, I've been calling you for a couple of weeks and I haven't heard back. Um, uh, so I think the biggest change or the, 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 what we're looking or wanting to see is some sort of um, accountability mechanism for them because they provide such a valuable role to the court. And, so, and this is the thing, I think my, my piece, specifically how a lot of these third parties are used in the state of California, we operate under the presumption that a lot of times that dad has to prove he's a fit parent. Mm -hmm. And in reality, we need to take a look at it and 99.999% of parents ultimately just want to spend time with their kids and want what's best for their kids. And I think if we shifted our thinking to okay, if there's an actual issue, if there's actual substance abuse, if there's actual domestic violence that we can, we can ascertain from what's been provided, yeah, then these professionals may be necessary, they may be needed. But I think a lot of times we pull these professionals in and it just muddies the water. And in my opinion, I think a lot of judges, at least in Southern California, utilize these professionals so they aren't the ones making the ultimate decision. Mm -hmm. They utilize that, um, that opinion or that report whatever they provide to guide them in their decision making so the ultimate decision is not on the judge. Uh, yeah, I mean we have our, our statutes here in Missouri are, are pretty strict in terms of you know if there are allegations of abuse or neglect a guardian litem shall be appointed. I mean there's no discretion by the judge they have to do it. Yeah. So I think the fix there again is legislative and, and that's why we've, you know, at AFESP, we've worked so hard creating these relationships and TFRM does a great job on outreach and NPO with their surveys and whatnot. But the, the fix, the solution to these problems is legislative. And so if 
it is, and, and I think it should be. I mean, if there's no, no one wants a kid going to where they're going to be abused. So if there's abuse or neglect alleged, then absolutely um, a GAL ought to be appointed. But let's look at what it means to allege abuse and neglect. That's where the legislative fix comes in, because the statute of Missouri is so loose on what is required for an abuse of, uh, for an allegation of abuse or neglect. For example, it just says if abuse or neglect is alleged. It doesn't say by whom. I've had lawyers allege it but they're not the parents. Um, it doesn't say under oath, and it also doesn't say with any type of specificity. So, you know, I had a case once where a lawyer came in and hand wrote, I think, a, am not even gonna say a one-line motion, a five-word motion, motion for GAL, dad abused kid. And the judge's hands are tied. Yeah. I mean, the statute says if it's, if it's alleged, you've got to appoint a GAL. So I think, you know, in addition to the accountability we just spoke of, I think we need to look at the underlying statutes and laws and fix those. Because I think if we had some guideposts on abuse and neglect, then at least I can say to my client, well, look, it's not a five-word motion. Here's, here's what they're alleging with specificity. So I can then, I can then you know, investigate it, challenge it, look into it. I'm just not dealing with some amorphous, well, there's abuse. Yeah, and I think that's, that's another very, very large challenge um, it, are these allegations where I think there are a lot of states that have statutes, California is one of them, where abuse or domestic violence is defined so broadly that it's next to impossible to defend against these things that could be completely baseless, they could be based on something, you can't really pinpoint what exactly they're trying to say, but all of a sudden there are all these levers that have to get pulled because there's a domestic violence allegation, there's a child abuse allegation, and the party that's being alleged against, the allegations are so vague, you can't even defend them to the judge. You're, it, it, as an attorney even, it feels like this. You're basically saying, nuh-uh, that didn't happen. Yeah. And that's all you can do. Yeah. 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 I mean, now it's a little bit different with, again, we talked about the younger demographic. Along with that younger demographic comes technology. So everyone's walking around now with a, you know, a video camera in their pocket. Um, and so, you know, if that's always running, you, you, you might be able to, you know, negate some of those. Uh, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the problem is, you know, domestic violence, you know, is real. It occurs. These abuse statutes, because of that, are necessary. The problem is, on the other hand, as a practical matter, the Adult Abuse Act is one of the most abused statutes in Missouri. So, you know, I mean, there's not even a filing fee, for crying out loud. You know, even 20 bucks. Um, and again, that's another legislative fix we're looking at. If there were some type of filing fee, um, right now, it acts as uh, without a filing fee, and the clerks are required to help uh, a litigant um, uh, write out the petition yeah. for an order of protection. Um, it becomes, I kind of call it jailhouse justice. I mean, you know, I'll show you, I'll get back at you. Um, and I see it on both sides, both men and women, you know, file these things. Um, the problem is we just, I think, legislatively need to find the balance between, because I've also represented, you know, horrible cases of domestic violence where, yeah. you know, mom just, you know, had the pulp beat out of her. So we need the protection and it's real, it occurs. We also, though, need some, you know, protections in terms of, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a $20 filing fee waived if you accompany it with a police report, I think solves some of those problems. Yeah, no, I think I won't even say one of the most abused in the state of California. Mm. It's Family Code Section 3044. Mm. And there are parties that instead of responding to a divorce or responding to a petition for parent, they file, this, they sure. file for a domestic violence restraining order. Yeah. Um, and no, no joke, I had one, I had a temporary restraining order that got granted against my client after we had filed for custody, yeah. her allegation was that he drove by her house. Mm -hmm. They'd been co-parenting separate for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Her allegation was they drove by, he drove by her house. Mm -hmm. And if we'd have been able to respond to that before they granted it, we had work records that showed that he wasn't even in the state when she made this allegation. But he all of a sudden loses almost a month worth of time mm -hmm. of parenting his children. He couldn't go to his son's football games. Um, so it's, it's one of those things in California, the way the statute's written, it's, it's used as a sword. It's not. Yeah. So, and that's where a temporary order entered at the beginning of the case solves these problems because it reels in the emotion. You know, the first thing I'll say to a client who's filed an order of protection is I'll say, well, the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna dismiss that. And their draw, you know, kind of drops. And I said, well, in Missouri anyways, it's only good for a year um, uh, 
uh, it can be extended for another year up to two years. But if your kiddo is only three or four, it doesn't, you, don't, you don't need an order of protection. You need, a, you need a parenting plan. You need a custody order. The problem is um, orders of protection have no filing fee and you have assistance filling it out. You don't, you don't, you don't have to hire a lawyer for it. That, so that's, where, that's why it's the go-to thing to do. And in the state of California, it's what's preponderance of the evidence to get right. the administrative restraining order granted. Right. And in the state of California, that creates a presumption for five years that that parent that it's granted against shouldn't have any legal or physical custody. So all of a sudden, I mean, I would say 70 to 80% of my clients have either prior to me representing them, yeah. um, had a DVRO granted against them, or we've defended against a domestic violence right. restraining order. But it's it's such a sword that, I mean, like I said, the client who um, he had to, like we had to go in and defend that he drove by. Right. It was a hearing that we were in front of the judge for five minutes and the judge was like, no, this isn't anything. In my head, I'm like, why did you sign off on a temporary restraining order being granted? Because mm. your name's the one that signed off on this. Right. But that dad, all of a sudden, it that was the preparation oh. and multiple witnesses showed up that yep. day, everything else. I mean, everybody involved, like lost work, attorney's oh, yeah. fees, filings, everything. It was probably a $2,000 expense to their immediate circle yeah. Yeah. to, to pr disprove this flimsy allegation yeah. that was just signed off on without looking at well, it. Well, not, not just that. I mean, can you imagine? I know a lot of your viewers don't need to imagine. I'm sure they've experienced it. But coming home from work one day to a sheriff standing there saying, you've got 10 minutes to get your stuff. Uh, it's, well, where am I going to go? Yeah, sheriff's is not my problem. Yeah. Uh, and where are you going to go? Buddy's couch? Your parents' home? But what about the job that you've got to have your work attire for or, or whatever, or your tools, mm -hmm. you know? Um, you don't have time to get all the tools in your shop, in the garage or something, you know? Um, so, so, but again, I think what we work towards at, with AFESP is a legislative fix to these. So I think something, some ideas like a filing fee, you waive it if there's a police report, um, will help hopefully curb some of, you yeah. know, some of those, some very, of the abuse. It's a very tricky issue. And this is, and, and I've never had, obviously 3044 in California is something that, needs to be changed mm. because of how it's weaponized and how right. it creates this contention when it's really in most cases not actually necessary it is necessary in some cases I, well if you can get in early enough and that's you know the, the 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 best work i can do is when i can get into a case early enough when someone comes to me saying well i want to file an order of protection i said wait a second let, let me what, what's going on well he drove by my house well that's not quite enough what you really need is just let's let's file your divorce or your custody and and, and deal with it that way um, so if you can get in early enough, because what that does is that controls the emotion, that mm -hmm. controls that I want to get back in him or her. Um, you know, uh, you know the way you get back is you know living your best life. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, um, I, and I think that that goes part onto our profession. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are there are several. Like I know I know in the equal and shared parenting community, uh, there are a lot of individuals who don't don't necessarily like lawyers. Um, and I see that every week in the yeah. comments. But um, I, I would say the vast majority of lawyers, when the lawyers go to talk and it's just the two of them, um, are like, we really don't need these things. Yeah. Our clients are kind of driving this. Like, yeah. is there middle ground that we can make a deal right now? Yeah. Because I'll tell you this, like, the, the happiest that two lawyers, that at least personally <laughs> in my experience, is like you show up to court on that first day and the two lawyers tell the parties, go stand out at the other ends of the hallway, you mm -hmm. meet in the middle, and before you even go in in front of the judge, like you're like, hey, we got this figured out. Yeah. Um, and it may be two months from filing to them having yeah. some sort of stability in terms of a custody. Plan. Well, that's just it, is how do, I, how do I get stability back in my client's life as soon as possible? And that means a schedule, their kids, you know, financial things straightened around. And that's why, um, you know, again, these legislative fixes are so important because they do that. Again, there's no point going back to court to get more time with your five-year-old if by the time you get it, they're eight. Uh, and, you know, absent, there are um, um, complex cases, absolutely. But, I mean, the majority of cases, it's not rocket science. Um, there's no reason cases should take 18 months minimum. I've seen cases drag out two, three years. There's no reason. There's none. Oh, I've seen I've seen it more than two yep. or three years in in, in California, um, definitely. So um, there's a couple people in here asking if we are taking questions. Uh, we are taking questions. Um, we're going to take three or four here um, in the next couple of minutes. So drop your questions in the comments, whether you're on YouTube or on Facebook. Um, 
so I, I got I do I want to want to ask you a question because I know you have a, a background and you've done some some class action work. Oh sure, yeah. Um, so one of um, and I guess this is a little bit of a tease, but um, of of a, a an announcement that's going to happen this weekend. But um, and that's as far as I can go. <laughs> I promise it'll come out this weekend. But. Um, there's always a lot of talk, and I don't know how active. I kind of got my start. I was trained as a labor and employment attorney. Okay. I kind of got my start in it and going through my own situation and then being involved in the Facebook groups and right. answering questions and things like that. And I'm not in there as much as I would like to be or as much as I once was, but one of the things that would always come up um, was – is there grounds for, in the legal terms, is to certify a class? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I haven't been involved too much in class action work. There's a little bit of it that happens in labor and employment, um, but it was mostly on the defending side, management side, labor and employment. Um, do you think there's potentially grounds for, whether it be state by state or nationally, for a class to be certified for um, just different things that occur within the family court system? Well, I'll give you a uh, perfect lawyer answer. It depends. <laughs> maybe. Our, it's a definite our, maybe. Our favorite, our favorite answer. It depends. It's a definite maybe. So, I mean, it's been, you know, 10 years since I've done classwork. Um, but, I mean, the biggest issue you'd have in, um, you know, any type of class application of, you know, family law stuff something that's called individual issues so a class action you've got to show basically uniform treatment um although you read you read some comments and threads and you know uh someone tells you their case like oh my gosh that's my case or you know there's a lot of there are a lot of there is a lot of commonality to it but at the end of the day you've got to show it's it's for to certify a class or to sustain a class action um you've got to show uniform treatment or commonality of issues and i think with family law um, just off the cuff um, in the abstract, I think you're going to find there's too many individualized issues to sustain mm-hmm. a class. Now, um, you know, if so there is... Here's a question. The, and this is the piece that I point out. I, I have that same thought. It's, mm-hmm. It would be very challenging to certify a class even state by state. Mm-hmm. But Oh, you'd have to do it state by state. Yeah, so, the, and the, so, so the state by state. And different states, certain states would be more ripe for the issue. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, one state that I'm aware of that, or, or we'll just use the one that's had the most movement. It wouldn't be the best one because there's a lot of change occurring mm-hmm. in the state law. But the state of Texas, where they, oh, sure. where it stipulates to, there's essentially the custodial parent and mm-hmm. the non-custodial parent. Mm-hmm. And it's specific on the amount of time. I think it would have to be a state like that. Minnesota has something similar where basically both parents start with 25% mm-hmm. and then the other 50% is up for grabs. I think it would have to be a state that has laws like that that specifically lays out percentages i mean yeah you'd have to show a uniform application of that law so i mean if each start with 25 percent and you got 50 that that gray area of the 50 is where those individualized issues comes in i mean if you could show in texas under that code that you know every single you know judge in every single county always gives parent a only ten percent, and parent B forty percent of that fifty percent. Then it's then it's a maybe. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the problem: is you're, you're dealing with too much gray area. Um, I'll see if I can think of a, a statute that might apply uniformly. But once you get into the weeds on it, you find it starts it starts it starts getting too individualized. It, 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 that, that's kind of my opinion. It'd be very very murky, mm-hmm. um, considering. And you mentioned this earlier, and this is uh, it's. Um, despite the fact that this is an issue that disproportionately impacts men, at the end of the day, there's still um, 14% of women that are non-custodial parents. And I can guarantee, I know for a fact, not all of them are drug, de- drug oh, dealers oh. or, or Gosh, domestic yeah. violence. There are moms who also get the raw deal in this. Yeah. So it wouldn't, it couldn't necessarily be gender based because I think that 14% is far too great to say this happens to men. Yeah, and I think even challenges, I was just looking at this over the weekend, last weekend, I think even challenges based on equal protection of laws have also failed as well. So, I mean, I've, you know, read cases where um, uh, divorced, I'll just use fathers, but divorced fathers are treated differently than. Um, unmarried fathers mm-hmm. uh, in application of you know whatever law and, and, and challenges based on I actually I like the argument but it's just it's been an unsuccessful one 
um, have been, well, wait a second, you're treating me differently based on the sole reason that I'm divorced versus as if I never got married. And courts have not been too welcoming to that, to that argument. Yeah, that, that would be, uh, in, in, as much as I would love to say it, it would be something that could create a quick fix, I just, I, I don't personally see it right away. I know there's a lot of, a lot of conversation around that. And there are other issues too. If you go to federal court, so you try to certify in federal court, um, there are like the domestic relations exception is defined very, very broadly. Like, sure. Anything involving divorce and child custody is essentially immediately going to get kicked out under that. I think so. I don't know how you'd get to federal court, but and then anything under any class, class actions aren't quick. <laughs> My last class action lasted seven years. <laughs> I, I, I vividly, it was, it was towards the end of law school, interviewed with a firm who exclusively did class action uh -huh. stuff. Very successful. They're probably the most prominent class action firm. Okay. All they do is class action in the, yeah. in the city of Chicago. Okay. And the partners went, it was like four and a half years where mm. they didn't make a single penny. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, another, that's another problem in, in, in the profession, yeah. And I'll never forget when I, I, the last class case I handled, I resolved, and, and my son was 13. But I look back, I was like, my gosh, when I filed this case, my son was six. <laughs> so <laughs> it takes a long time. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look through here. Um, sorry, I'm looking away from the camera. My computer's off the screen here. I'm going to find a couple of questions. If you have a question, drop it in the box. Um, all right, question. While you're looking, um, well, and while I remember, let me just take this opportunity to say, go Cardinals, 12 in a row. Hey, I saw they came back <laughs> came for the back. win. Grand slam in the first inning and then come back to win. Not going to lie. I am i mean, from Canada, I'm a hockey fan, but I turned it off in the sixth inning. And I taught my kid, real fans don't leave early. Real fans don't mm -hmm. turn off. the. And I saw the tweets later, that's 12 in a row. I was like, no, it's not 12 in a row. They lost today. Sure enough, they came back from a 5-1 deficit. And man, oh man, I wish I had kept the TV on. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna pull this question up, and I'm kind of gonna gonna paraphrase the question. Um, so Jeff Michael, so um, essentially he's asking about judges. So question is, um, is it wise to report a commissioner or judge that told your attorney, regardless of evidence or videos submitted, it won't change his judgment? So I'm gonna kind of shift the question a little bit. So how, and we'll, we'll direct this at really pro se litigants, pro per litigants. But if you have a judge that is, when you're representing a client that you don't feel is really taking into account the evidence, isn't really looking at the facts, how can you combat that? And I'll, 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 go, for, I'll go first on this because the first thing that pops into my head is that in California, just with how busy the court calendars are, you absolutely have to file briefs, you have to file declarations beforehand, and you have to build a theme. You're going to be in front of that judge once every three to four months, most likely, two to three times a year. There's no way this judge is going to understand your situation. For the past 18 months, we were virtual. They may not yeah. have seen your face. Um, they've just maybe heard your voice. So um, it's, it's building, it's having your themes um, and sticking with them. And then also, before every hearing, there's no harm in the, in the state of California, you can file a declaration to give the judge an update. And so you can provide the judge with all this information prior to going in. The biggest mistake I see um, when, when I'm, I'm sitting in court and I hear pro per litigants um, presenting their cases, they haven't given the judge any information or evidence prior to the hearing. And these judges, they're going to read these documents. They're going to look at things beforehand then they're gonna kind of have an idea of what's going on. So if the other side's submitting things, you're submitting nothing. They're getting a one-sided story, and then you get your 15 minutes to present your side. Yeah, I mean, the, the other big problem too is, um, and, and I get the realities and practicalities of financial constraints, absolutely. Um, but, but part of the problem in representing yourself is just the emotion involved. So my, you know, my, I think number one tip or pointer would be do the best you can to try and um, divorce yourself, no pun intended, um, from the emotion. Um, because otherwise, you're, you're acting on emotion. You're not coming out clear. You're not being succinct. You know, the other thing to keep in mind is I, I want to circle back to if you think they're not 
counting on the evidence or, or whatnot. But the other thing, at, at these, you also have to know what the purpose of your hearing is. I mean, you know, typically the first time out, you have you know a case management conference, which is just to manage deadlines and and dates and things. Yeah. Um, that's not your opportunity to you know. Um, argue for temporary custody you got to file a certain motion for that um and and at those case management conferences or settlement conferences they're not what's called evidentiary which means you're not taking evidence you're just giving the judge your sort of side of the story and you, you don't have long to do it i actually i kind of i aim for about an estimation i probably got about 30 seconds with this mm -hmm. judge so i gotta get my best stuff out in 30 seconds and it's hard because well i i've created some i mean i'll have clients come to me with a stack you know here's all the emails and the text they've sent and i say, pick your pick your best three <laughs> you know um try and picture the courts heard this however long the judge has been a judge for they've heard the same story over and over again um and you've got to, so because of that, you've got to be succinct. They're not going to want to listen to you for half an hour. I mean, they're not going to listen to you for half an hour. Here's what I do to my clients. On my desk, I have a copy of California Family Code. And it's probably about two inches thick. Yeah. And when they get in their feelings, I'm like, your feelings don't matter. Yeah. All that matters is what it says in this book of, of this code. Yeah, and, and, and that's the problem with going pro se. You might not necessarily know that or know what your remedies are. I mean, if you, know, if you don't think a judge has um, you know, listened to the evidence or seen it fairly, what are some of, you need to know what are some of your procedural remedies. Um, a lot of this, I mean, even, gosh, even with attorneys, I mean, the practicalities of it are who can you know, afford not just to go to trial, but also an appeal behind that. I mean, that's why, again, these legislative fixes are so important because we need to cut through this, you know, minimum $25,000, $30,000 trial expense, never mind the appeal, um, and figure out how to problem solve, um, how to realize I'm not going to get justice here. This is not about getting justice. If you're going to family court looking for justice, you're not going to find it. I've got to figure out a way of minimizing my exposure, my mental health, my finances to something that at the end of the day, I'm not going to be satisfied with because you're not. Um, so how do I make the best of it and get myself in and out um, in say six months or less, I'm not going to get everything. In fact, one of the first things I do to tell my clients is real bad. You're not going to get everything under the sun. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, so to try and answer the question of what to do if a judge doesn't um, analyze the evidence other than, you know, knowing your procedural remedies, this, the, the code of procedure, I mean, you, you need to know all that. That's why having an attorney is so important. Barring that, I think then you need to say, I've got to assume I'm not going to be satisfied with this process. So how do I maximize what I can, when I can, to get the heck out of here? What are the two or three things that really matter um, at the end of the day? Oh, I, time with your kid. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm when, when people go in there and, and um, I've I've had instances where game systems or um, different oh, things. Oh gosh, um, no, no, up, no. I, I had I had a client message me about this, the PlayStation 5 the couple had. Yeah. Um, and I said, I will fire you as a client if you ask me to litigate over yes. PlayStation 5. So, yeah. So here's what I tell mine. I say, it, it, it's funny watching the, it's not funny, I shouldn't say that, but it's curious when I, I give this advice and the jaw drops. And the advice is, give them everything. Yes, give them everything. We're not so gonna we're not gonna fight over the TV. Why? Because you're gonna you're gonna get a better TV. You're gonna if get it's a not gonna TV. matter in six months. It's, we're not it's, even going to no, address it. I, I don't no, I, I don't do that because you can you can that's stuff. You can always replace stuff. You can't replace time. So so that's why getting back to what I was saying in terms of you gotta maximize what is it I need to get out of it. It's not the TV, it's not the PS five, it's time with your kids. So how do I, you know, worry about that not not the other stuff and not you know not who's picking up or taking to how much time am i spending in the car heck that's just more time with your kid uh, you know offer to do all the transportation you get more time with your kid yeah so. definitely definitely well we're, we're coming to a close um to our hour um tonight jeff i want to thank you um for thank making you. some time tonight to come Absolutely. over um it, it's been a little bit different uh it's been our first live show i know uh 
this week. Uh, you're probably gonna this weekend. You're probably gonna see more. I got Casey's right behind the camera. Probably gonna see more from the Fathers' Rights Movement um, this weekend, um, going live uh, from St. Louis. I believe you may know more than I do. Um, I did have a link to the um, conference this weekend. I believe you can still purchase a virtual ticket. Um, to be able to get in on most of the sessions. Yeah, if you go to the Americans for Equal Shared Parenting website, it's afesp.com, there should be a link there to how to go about getting those tickets. Awesome, awesome. And then uh, what I want to leave them with is you're uh, an attorney here in the St. Louis area. How can they get a hold of you? Oh, um, appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, go to, uh, it's real easy, flatrate.legal is my website. So flatrate.legal. Um, if you're in the St. Louis area and you're in the market for an attorney to represent you, um, Jeff could be your guy. And I, and I have, let me find it. I got, I got one more, I, I think, a, a comment that... Uh, Real quick, before hitting the comment while you're, while you're looking at it, I think I should say, I might be obligated to say with respect to that, um, the choice of a lawyer is an important decision and not, it should not be based solely on advertisements to the extent that's considered an advertisement. Go with your gut. That's what I always tell everyone, mm -hmm. uh, in, anyone who's in my office, that uh, you, uh, you don't have to pick me. I'm not the right person for everyone. Um, you need to go with whoever you are most comfortable with. I shared the link to get the tickets. Okay. Oh, so we, we got the link um, in the um, comment section on Facebook. Uh, Casey shared that. So you can go and you can click that link and um, get a ticket to be able to... Um, watch most of the sessions. I don't think it's all of them, but the majority of the sessions this weekend. Um, so um, I want to leave us with a comment. So um, Jason Newell, um, Jeff Lars <laughs> the shit. Um, so um, Jeff, I want to thank you so much. Um, thank it. all the viewers for watching. Um, next Thursday, we will um, be back. We're going to have Philadelphia, Pennsylvania attorney Larry DeMarco on. Um, once again, Jeff, thank you for making some time tonight. Thank you for having me. Appreciate and, it. Pleasure um, to be here. We will see everyone uh, next week.